had a, a, a group of guests who um, it was their last uh, morning drive and they had wanted to see dogs. And I would say you can't guarantee dogs in Rwaha like you could in uh, you know, the Sabuti, the Nyanti areas of Botswana. But these guests have been itching to see dogs. It was one of the last things they, they wanted to see. And I kind of made one of those jokes, which I'm sure uh, a lot of managers and guides say, say, well, you never know. You've, you've, got to, you've got to be out there to, to stand a chance. And literally, as I said that, a group of seven wild dogs ran through the car park, laid down between the vehicles and uh, even the guides. Uh, we were all just looking at each other. The guests, uh, the guests said, did you organise this? Uh, we're like, we honestly didn't organise it. Um, but it's just one of those great moments where you know sometimes you think the wildlife does actually listen. That was safari expert Jake Cook, and this is the Travelling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie. Jambo and Caribou to the Travelling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie, which I'm sure you all know is hello and welcome to the Travelling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie in Swahili. Right, we're still in lockdown. Um, how are you coping with things? Have you learned something new? Uh, here in the UK, it's still a bit surreal, um, but by and large, everyone's getting on with things as they should, sort of social distancing and staying at home. But I know there are plenty of people and families who must be climbing the walls to get outside. But hang in there, guys. Just hang in there. I must confess, actually, to getting itchy feet and desperately wanting the lockdown to end uh, and get back to work. Uh, but whatever happens, though, please st- take care. Stay happy. Uh, look after yourself and your loved ones. And also, um, huge shout out to those on the front line as well, caring for everyone affected by corona. And don't forget to subscribe and review to the, uh, the Travelling Optimist podcast with Steve Odie on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So this week's guest on the Travelling Optimist is someone I've known for a few years now. Jake Cook has had the Africa traveling bug since 2007, where he got stuck into conservation work in Botswana and South Africa. Uh, But since then, he's managed or guided at uh, long-established luxury safari and beach camps in six countries, no less, across the continent. He's passionate about conservation and community and tourism and hospitality in the hospitality arenas in Africa, and is a true professional when it comes to looking after clients and customers. So, hey, Jake, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good, man. Good. Um, it's really good to, uh, to speak with you today. Um, thanks for coming on. So how are things in lockdown for you? Yeah, great. I mean, I'm back in the UK uh, just for, for the lockdown. Kind of got marooned here a little bit. I was back visiting friends and family um, when all the airports began to shut. Luckily, uh, yeah, I have plenty of places here in the UK that, that will have us. It's all quite a surreal situation, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Absolutely. No, we've 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 met neighbours that we didn't know. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, it's it's great to kind of speak to people in the community uh, who are also working there. People who uh, actually work for this place for time, and to hear their stories about how, how they've been meeting people they uh, live next to, mm. uh, and things that you hear some great examples of community outreach uh, people volunteering to take food to others mm. one of the local uh, indian takeaway restaurants here has been cooking free food and taking it around to sort of care homes yeah um, that, that was really great and, and you're seeing some really great uh, examples of people pulling together absolutely there's a lot of camaraderie actually and um and that's which is i think one of the the best positives i think we can all take out of this whole scenario really which um hopefully is going to come to an end fairly soon but let's um, let's sort of dive down, dive into 
uh, a few things because when I last saw you, you were working at the explorations uh, company in the Cotswolds. And then all of a sudden I got a message saying, yeah, hi, Steve, I'm in Tanzania. But what was the inspiration for that? I mean, I've always been a bit of an itchy feet kind of guy. Um, and ever since I've set foot in Africa 13 years ago now, I have uh, always wanted to be involved in the industry and I've actually been in the privileged position where um, I could be here doing that in the UK and I love designing itineraries and setting trips up people um, and hearing how it went but I also equally love just being on the ground and I just saw this opportunity to go and work in Rwaha National Park in southern Tanzania which for those that have and haven't been is just a phenomenal wilderness and had always wanted to really go and immerse myself there and work there and I saw a job opportunity at a Kuka Safari camp. I had quite a, a, a good chat with the owner. Um, we ended up spending most of the time chatting about rugby. And um, I remember uh, the owner, Mark Sheridan Johnson, just saying, great, when can you come out? Uh, which just took me a little bit by surprise. Um, and then he said, oh, actually, hold that. I need to speak to my wife. Uh, and so it all happened quite quickly. Uh, and But I was ready to go. Uh, I just yeah, love, uh, you know, being on the ground in the sunshine every day, um, you know, the, the smells, dust in the atmosphere, yeah. um, uh, driving a car which doesn't have sides or roof. <laughs> um, you know, it's just little things like that. And so that's really how, how it came about. From a travel and tourism perspective, has it always been Africa that's been your kind of first love, as it were? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's something about Africa, isn't there, as I'm sure you'll agree listening to some of your other podcasts and some of the, the guests you've had on there, I, I concur with a lot of what they say. It is just the vibrancy of life there, whether you're a guest visiting or someone who lives there. It's the sights, yeah. the smells. Uh, I find that your senses are just completely heightened uh, when you visit the continent. It's, it's got that raw beauty, but deep like clarity that engages you. Um, and so uh, I think that that's something that grabbed me from the outset. I mean, I have heard people you know, talk in similar ways about places like India, parts of South America. That's what travel does. It, it opens those senses up and, and it keeps you coming back for more. Oh, it does. I mean, Africa just absolutely slaps you in the face with all that stuff, doesn't it? I mean, quite literally just immense beauty and the people and everything wait so you landed in um tanzania you flew down to ruwaha what was your role what did you sort of get involved with when you were at the camp yeah i mean kuka being a sort of a small family-run business it really you sort of get people who come and think you know some of these operations are you know huge beer moths and and actually, uh, these small companies uh, are how it, it used to be in the Africa yeah. industry. I mean, it was literally myself and the owner and his wife, Chloe Sheridan Johnson, their family, who had been in the tea industry in Tanzania for decades. And essentially, their story of how they started was they were around a fire, had a couple of glasses of red wine, perhaps one too many, their words. Um, and they said they thought they'd like to start a safari camp. I think little do you know then how such a big operation it is, but because it was their dream and sort of going in into that situation where it really was their life, you just saw them throw themselves into everything and you just do the same. So I was jumping in on everything from obviously the day-to-day -day logistics of getting people to the camp, organising activities, making sure the kitchen and the housekeepers have got everything prepped, but also a bit of the sales and marketing, engaging with, with agents and marketers in various parts of the world, 
engaging with government authorities, making sure that you're complying with all the rules and regulations, of which there are many in Tanzania. Um, uh, you know, it's working with the national parks guys on the ground, working with NGOs. There really yeah. was so much going on. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate is that, you know, you look after the guests, you come and paid yeah. really good money to come stay with you. That's the first thing. But everything from developing the product behind the scenes, so at Akuka, we... Uh, has built uh, by the end of last season a new sleep out deck um, in a beautiful rocky outcrop just mm. behind the camp, completely private. And, and again, one of the most amazing parts of working on the ground is no day is ever the same. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the unique and special parts is that you're constantly being stimulated by uh, a different parts of, of what it takes to run a camp. Tell me about Ruaha as a, as a national park. Mm, yeah, I mean, for first thing, it's just relative to the size. It's over 20,000 square kilometres uh, and there's like 10 camps there. That's just the national park, Ruaha is actually part of a much bigger conservation area um, there's some wildlife management areas that surround the whole park which adds uh, another 25,000 square kilometers to it so the actual area itself is 45,000 square kilometers now to give that some perspective that's one and a half times to Serengeti mm. um, and if you think uh, um, most people would have an idea in the industry of how many camps are in the Serengeti and uh, it's just to have an area that size yeah. um, uh, in relative peace and in Ruaha, one of the great things is there's there's no huge hotels there. They're all small camps. There's one that I think's got about 25 rooms in, in a more remote southern part of the park. Mm. But otherwise, you're looking at camps between sort of two and eight rooms yeah. um, at, at sort of various price points. So you can go for a game drive or walk there quite happily and not see anybody, even yeah. in high season. Uh, and I think that's getting harder and harder to do uh, on safari these days. And in terms of what Rawaha, the biodiversity has to be something to be sort of just admired, really. It's uh, It's got over 1,650 plants and tree species. It's got 10% of all of Africa's wild lions left. So to give you an idea, that's between two and 3,000 lions in the park. It's got unbelievable birds, like 580 bird species, and they're still finding new ones. <laughs> and this is all in an area where some parts of the park haven't even been explored. There's no roads to some parts of it. Uh, I was quite fortunate enough to go camping down in the Sangu wetlands uh, whilst I was there, uh, which uh, is right in the southwestern corner. Currently, no tourist camps there. No one can go down there. I was doing a, a recce trip uh, for another company that's planning to set a camp up there. The park, you just cannot believe how different the park felt. I mean, I've worked in the Okavango, and parts of Rawaha, you might feel a bit like South Luangwa in Zambia, traditional savanna, uh, you know, woodland areas. But then you go down into these wetlands, you could be in the Okavango Delta. And it's just such a marked change in scenery and also the wildlife changes uh, it's a real eye-opener just uh, how much we don't know about some of these areas and how much there is left to explore yeah um, and that's always really exciting and for Waha, you always feel there's just that little bit more to see that and, and that pulls people back I mean we had guests at Akuka had been coming back for years and years and years they still couldn't get enough and it's not one of those parks that you say you've done mm. uh, and, and that's even from some and even you speak to the people that have owned camps there work there for a couple of decades yeah one of those rare rare places that that uh, lingers in the mind long after you go so to get down to those wetlands um, mm. is that sort of an excursion you, you take clients on or is it is it something you just did privately or I mean I, I did it privately 
Zemecki trip, but basically for um, Acilia, they are putting a new camp down there and it's a wonderful area. Uh, and I think it would be great for anyone going to Ruaha once that camp opens to combine that with one of the areas around the Magusi or Ruaha River areas mm. where the game viewing is better there at the moment, at least, because the game's slightly more used to vehicles and yeah. those rivers are just huge magnets for wildlife in, in the dry season you can see herds of over 2,000 buffalo crossing the river I mean I got stuck mm. one day driving back about 45 minutes waiting for a herd of buffalo to cross the road and you know I didn't mind waiting but you do just realize like you know how much wildlife is in that park yeah, I did. I had no idea, actually. I thought it was a little bit more sparse. I thought you had to really go looking for it or, um, you know, it's a park that's for more seasoned sort of safari travellers. I don't know. It, it, did I, so I've got that completely wrong then. Yeah, um, no, I, I wouldn't say so in the sense that it's not like the Serengeti or the Masamara or the Kruger areas where you can see the big five one drive. There's no rhinos in Ruaha for a start, yeah. unfortunately, anymore. But in the dry season in Ruaha, the game really does pump. Yeah, I was keeping some loose figures. We were seeing lions and leopards pretty much every day from July through October. Wild dogs and cheetah, they're, they're a bit more scarce, but yeah. um, it can vary year for year. If you get a, a cheetah family, take residence around then you can get some great cheetah sightings we had wild dogs running through camp i remember we had a, a, a group of guests who um it was their last uh, morning drive and they wanted to see dogs and i would say you can't guarantee dogs in Ruaha like you could in uh, you know the sabuti linianti areas of botswana but these guests have been itching to see dogs it was one of the last things they they wanted to see and I kind of made one of those jokes, which I'm sure uh, a lot of managers and guides say. Said, "Well, you never know. You've, you've got to, you've got to be out there to, to stand a chance." And literally, as I said that, a group of seven wild dogs ran through the car park, lay down between the vehicles, and uh, even the guides. Uh, <laughs> we were all just looking at each other. The guests, uh, the guests said, "Did you organise this?" Uh, we're like, "We honestly didn't organise." Um, but it's just one of those great moments where you know sometimes you think the wildlife does actually listen. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So uh, just sort of going back to the seasons, I'd say you know if you if you go into Ruaha for the big game experience, certainly. I mean, June's a great month as well, but June through October before the rains hit, mm. fantastic for sort of general wildlife viewing of predators. Um, but what's interesting, uh, and I found Ruaha, and I go back to the birds. If anyone's interested in birds or wildflowers, the biodiversity just is incredible once the rains come. Mm. Um, you know, the Palearctic migrants come down, and the park just goes from this sort of grey, orangey dryness to this explosion of various tones of green um, and the rivers start to fill up and flow for seasoned travellers like you mentioned I think you could go any time of year I think going in the green season in Ruwaha is is a completely different experience and for those that you know really appreciate the nuances of a safari just being out there seeing summer at its most beautiful you know the and the November through sort of March time is is also fantastic. A lot of the park does close April, May, which is kind of interesting because actually the park's really nice then and it's Rawaha's weather isn't quite like that of northern Tanzania or even the Salute. It's a bit more of a southern African climate where it has a longer rainy season. So when you've got clients coming in, do they do they stay for sort of three nights or four nights? Is it a week or what's the Yeah, I mean at Akuka we just had we were just 
packed the whole season. I mean, we must have been hitting 80% occupancies. And most people staying for four nights. Mm. It gives you three whole days. And Ruaha is so big, you'll never see the whole park in three whole days. No. But what it does allow is the guys to show you the highlights. And I think there's less pressure to drive and you can take a slower safari uh, with that extra full day, that fourth yeah. night. Yeah. Um, I mean, we did have some clients stay for like two weeks um, and they'd been to the camp before. But I mean, we did have first timers come for about five nights. And that was the other thing, actually, you mentioned, which I completely agreed with you when I first went to Ruaha was it was a place for season safari goers. But I had to say at Akuka, about 40 to 45 percent, I'd say, of guests had never been on safari before. Great. And their agents had basically recommended Ruaha over even places like the Serengeti, sometimes in combination with because you can get a great game experience away from the crowds. And I think a lot of people now who are going on safari um, are wanting that wilderness feeling. Yeah. And even if they've never been on one, if they were going to see a lion or an elephant, they want to feel like it's it's theirs. Mm. They don't want to be queued up on radio or um, have 20 other vehicles around. And because the quality of the operations in Rawa are very high in terms of the general level of guiding that's instilled by the operations there, I got on fantastically well with all the other managers and the guides and there's a real sense of community in the park. Um, and I think that trickles down to the guest experience in the sense that people don't ever step the mark and, and everyone wants all of their guests to have a great time. And you yeah. can't say that about some other parks in, in Africa. It's, it's just, it just doesn't work that way. It's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. But the, the, like you said, I think a lot of people are looking for that wild experience. And there are still a few places where you can get that, which is, you mm. know, which is, which is fantastic. And long may that continue. So yes, completely. When you, you got this call from the, the owner of the camp to go and work in Tanzania, what sort of what went through your mind? Because you, you know you've got you're in a you had a really nice job. I mean, I'm a, I'm a very firm believer in doing as much as you can or uh, changing things up a bit because I think actually you, you you grow as a person when you do do that. Do you think it's good to change some things in your life in terms of that? And um, is it a positive thing to do? Yeah, I mean, obviously, every situation's uh, unique, isn't it? I think uh, ultimately you have to weigh up the options and decide what you think is best for you. Um, I do definitely believe in taking opportunities which uh, who knows may never come around again it's always a tough one isn't it because sometimes you think well you know I the grass can be greener on the other side and mm. sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but I have to say my, it's from my personal situation I, I just had that urge and it's hard it's hard to describe it is like an itch but like a giant itch uh, and it can only be scratched when I'm sort of back out on the ground wearing flip-flops every day <laughs> with, with a blazing African sun you know keeping me nice and warm yeah, you know the sound of sound of a Land Rover or a Land Cruiser is, is just sort of pottering along, you know, these great rivers. Just the classic stuff, seeing elephants yeah. wade across at sunset. You know what you did was uh, was incredible, and uh, and uh, as something that I think a lot of people would love to do. You know, just make that jump, and you know, it's fantastic. What what is life like when you're working in Tanzania? What's it really like? Yeah, I think it, number one, compared to anyone who sort of lives and works or brought up in in the UK or the Western world, it is a complete culture change in many ways. But in some ways, you kind of keep that connect because. 
you know, you're there to provide a, a service uh, and experience for the guests who are still in majority from Western countries. So you kind of do keep that cultural yeah. kind of connection, uh, certainly when you're at the front. But behind the scenes, you're very much living in Africa um, and whether, and obviously each country within Africa has very different cultural traits. But you do have to kind of split yourself. You have to put your, when you go at the back, you have to, you know, speak the Swahili and you know, remember that, uh, you know, today might be Eid and that you have to arrange a goat and some pilau rice and yes. um, you have to understand how people live in the country, you know, their family commitments, the pressures of them working in a remote operation where they only get to go home every you know, couple of months. Yeah, so it's quite, uh, you have to have many hats. You have to be patient. Uh, I think that's one of the first things you have to learn is to be patient and to listen. Um, whether you're listening to the staff who could have been at that camp for years since it first started, uh, who, who do know what they're doing and, uh, you know, that you are part of the team, even if you're leading the team as a manager, you have to listen. So you do spend a lot of time listening. You expect to make a lot of decisions <laughs> yeah. um, as well, sometimes tough decisions. And so I, but I just love all of that. I love the constant stimulation and variety of knowing, getting up, knowing that every day something will always something interesting always will happen it might just be walking through uh, the camp and seeing a really cool bird that you hadn't seen before or something also will happen on the game drive and everyone bundles in the vehicle and you'll go down and take pictures and you put them up on social media you had some something planned to do in your afternoon like try and catch some sleep and then you know i guess you've been getting along really well with the guest and they're like oh come for a sundowner and then say, okay, you do that. And so, I mean, you've got all these different things. But I mean, one thing I learned, certainly working on the ground in the industry, is nothing ever goes according to the plan. And you shouldn't expect it to. Uh, and if you have that kind of, uh, you know, attitude that you will just do your best um, and you just just roll with it, then the African people will have that attitude as well. And it's very friendly, fun attitude and it, you find that things just don't seem to bother them that some of the stresses that we might have over here um in our lives uh, things just don't seem to bother them as much out there and i think it's quite refreshing to, to, to go and live like that as well a little bit yeah yeah i would concur with that with the, that sentiment no it's an amazing attitude to life i think is, mm. uh, is yeah i mean i had i had a great uh, i had a great whatsapp message from uh, one of the, the staff at the cookie the other day and so it was just saying how, how are you doing um and um he, he said to me completely innocently and actually he just said so so how are things on your farm uh and just assuming that most people have have some kind of farm that they run as a side business do the continue to say I said, oh, I don't have a farm. He said, well, how do you get food? And, uh, you know, you and I would sort of think, well, you know, living here, that's quite obvious. But, you no, know, for them, it's just a different way of life and different way of thinking. And um, uh, I, I quite like uh, even the fact that they were sort of asking those questions as well. You know, it's a way of exchanging ideas. And so we talked about the idea of supermarkets and Amazon and Deliveroo. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but people deliver food to your door. And uh, so he's actually thinking about me doing that for business <laughs> yeah. um, now in his local area because he has a big chicken farm. Uh, and so rather than people coming to buy eggs from the market, he's like, well, you know, I can charge you a bit more. Uh, and we'll get it delivered. And so, yeah, he's he's having a good think about that. And you certainly learn things uh, of people. There's a lot of cross-cultural exchange uh, living there. And also it's great to see the guests and the staff, 
interact uh, and I've always been very supportive of that and I think living life in a safari lodge you have to sort of remember why people are there and so like life in Tanzania people have come to Tanzania to see Tanzania and I'm sure people might take comfort in the fact that, that I'm there ultimately they're there to see animals and to chat to Tanzanians and of, of, of course you get asked lots of questions about life there but it's it's great to see the stars sort of teaching them local games or a bit of Kiswahili and the yeah. innocence of it all as well, isn't it? It's the, mm. the you know the the fact that they they think that your friends from Africa think that you you live on a farm and that's the way that we must live. It's just incredible. What, I mean, what a story! Mm. So when you when you're in Tanzania, when you're running a camp and doing all the things that you were doing, and what was the funniest thing that's happened to you when you were in Tanzania? And so so when you're out there, you're obviously going to have a few takeaways, aren't you? So a few things that just stand out. Oh my God, that was just incredible. What was mm. the what was the what was the funniest thing that happened? One of the times. That I laughed the most actually wasn't when I was in my own camp. I was actually uh, I was actually raiding through a, another a friendly camp for the night. So I ha- had a night off. The park was just flooded in so many areas, and uh, yeah, we'd had a barbecue and uh, a couple of drinks. And the manager of that camp had just bought a canoe to try on one of the main rivers, the Magusi rivers, and we'd have permission to do that. But in our infinite wisdom, at sort of midnight, uh, <laughs> we thought that uh, we'd go and try the canoe out anyway. Uh, we actually had two canoes and there was, there was four of us. And there, there'd been sort of like a mini inland delta formed around the camp, uh, basically a frog pond on steroids. Obviously thinking we were great explorers now that we could paddle in a pond, a giant pond for a bit. And I remember we were coming to shore and uh, myself and my good friend, who's the executive chef of this property, uh, were kind of mocking the other boat for, you know, sort of not getting to the same point that we started at. And just at that point, my friend who was uh, actually still in the canoe behind me, something was in the in the canoe. I don't know what it was. And it made him jump and he rocked the canoe and we both just fell into the pond. I think karma may have uh, dealt us a bit of a swing there. <laughs> that was just one of many moments that... Uh, that make you chuckle. Did you find out what was in the canoe? Well, of course, you know... Guys being guys like to big up these stories. Uh, and uh, he said it was some kind of snake that had fallen on a tree. I refused to, to believe that. But I was in front of him, so I don't know. As soon as it fell on him and it was dark, I mean, we were paddling. We were paddling <laughs> basically by moonlight. Uh, we, didn't, we, we didn't even take torches, which is a golden rule. Um, we were just sort of messing around. The canoe just went in, uh, just capsized. So, um, And I was in complete shock. Because obviously I was at the front thinking we were on a safe, safe course for, for dry land. It's funny, actually, because there's, there seems to be a theme. Whenever I speak to people that have worked out in Africa, they, they've had some really funny moments or some of their most so, sort of beautiful moments have always been in other camps when they've been on their days off in front of the fireplace. You know, fireplace. So as an example, Matt Armstrong, um, who was in Zambia, he was at uh, Sausage Tree Camp and he was having a gin and tonic by the fire. And um, an elephant came up to him and started s- and sniffed him from... You you know, foot to the top of his head. And uh, he said it was a, the most surreal, most incredible experience. Have you had a, a beautiful moment like that in Africa? I mean, I, I've, I have had a couple. I mean, I had a, a similar one, uh, although I don't think the, the animal was quite somewhere at the time, but I was coming back actually in his neck of the woods uh, in the South Luangwa at the Lake Croc Valley camp, which uh, is, is great fun for anyone wanting to go for a, for a holiday there. And we had been actually out for sundowners in the park as when I was with Robin Pope Safaris. Again, probably had one too many vinos. I, I, I didn't have my torch again. I was, this is a common theme here, isn't it? 
Um, and I, I sort of got out of the vehicle uh, and was walking back and uh, I sort of couldn't remember where my tent was um, and I was just like which way do I go and I stopped uh, and I, uh, there's quite sort of big trees and boulders quite dark and I put my hand against uh, what I thought was a rock and it was actually the, the back end of a hippo um, and this thing uh, just bolted and I fell over the security card came rushing over and he had a torch uh, it was sort of one of those bored like at the time now you can kind of laugh at the time I was shocked into sobriety I think quite quickly so when you you, you mentioned actually that you had a whatsapp message from um somebody you knew uh, from Ruaha and they were saying, what are you doing on your farm? Now, I know that you've, you've, you haven't got a farm. I know it might, I, not, well, not yet anyway, but um, you, you are a converted vegetable patch grower, aren't you? I am. I'm now, yes, a part-time horticulturalist, as I'm sure many of us are in lockdown. Um, I have a veggie patch uh, and that's been carefully crafted by various members of the household I'm in. We've got enough for a salad now, I think, just about. Excellent. We planted it to start <laughs> lockdown. But um, yeah, so essentially, I'm quite lucky. My, my partner's mother's involved with a great, great charity called Sendercal. And so I've had some expert advice uh, on how, how to, to, to grow it. This is a horticultural slash animal husbandry charity that works predominantly within Africa. Yeah. And so I've been learning quite a bit about that. And uh, So what's, uh, your, know, what's so, the top tip then for, you know, for people, uh, for all the listeners? What would, what would you say? Uh, and remembering to put slug defences up. I've learned that one the hard way and actually a great tip. Um, and I've used it in Africa actually to keep termites and that's they sometimes just use ash from a fire or any other ash that you can get hold of. If you put a ring of ash around the, the, the veg patch, um, uh, that will keep the slugs away. They don't like crawling through that. So, yeah, anyone who's struggling. Um, Top tip. You heard it here first, folks. Exactly. Yeah, I, I won't <laughs> copyright it. Don't worry. Yeah. But Send a Cow. That's, so, Send a Cow, that is a really interesting uh, charity, actually, because I first met them at the um, a function at a Royal, Geograph- Royal Geographical Society event. And it struck me what an amazing thing to do because although it's something very simple and I know they're not cheap, but it's something very simple that actually elevates people out of their situation in Africa, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's been going um, uh, probably as long as I am old. I think it started in 88. Um, and it all began by people actually paying to buy a cow here in the UK and sending, actually sending it out to Uganda, um, which can you imagine the, the logistics of doing that back then? I mean, obviously, since then, it's evolved a lot. And they quickly realised that there's plenty of cows um, in in Africa, and it's doing a much greater good to the, the local industry there to source the cows from there. Yeah, but they've they basically have moved from just sort of sending cows and, and teaching about animal husbandry to horticulture, permaculture as well. Um, and what I like about them and is that they actually go to the most rural, uh, the most sort of challenging places to farm. Um, it, I think they're in about six countries now in Africa where there's the least support from from their governments and and try and make a difference and uh, what I like about them is they only work with smallholders they are very um, pro um, sort of women taking as much of part yeah. in learning it's not something that a man just does yeah um, and so it's very 
you know, heavily based on quality. And obviously, sustainability is the big thing, I guess, with any charitable effort. And so they sort of set up microfinance schemes uh, and teach people how to grow a surplus. Um, and uh, I think it's, the statistics are amazing. I think if you even grow a small surplus of your crop through just better farming practices, better yield, you can uh, times the income of by about six wow. of a household. So just doing a little bit more yields great dividends. And so uh, they're really great little charity. Like a lot of charities, they do run on like really tight budgets. Um, and there's a lot of people there who are just completely committed to the cause. So there's a lot of challenges for people on the grounds there. And I think it's a good way to remind ourselves not to take our, um, our food for granted. Um, yeah. But I think actually having a little veg patch in your garden and the effort you have to put into that is is, is quite rewarding mm. to to see sort of some fruits of your labor and, uh, and yeah you definitely realize how hard some people have to work you know just day to day just to put food on the table it gives you a bit of perspective really mm. so just to sort of wind up and and finish off what would you say is the sort of number one take from making that leap of faith from your secure job to doing something in tanzania and and sort of stretching your own personal boundaries moving out there and switching up the lifestyle is never really a challenge for me it's something that i've, I've been doing since I, I first sort of hopped across to africa um i found it so easy to do I, I think africa actually feels just as much of a home if not more than one than the uk so it wasn't a particularly difficult decision i think for anyone in a position where they might be considering it for the first time or, or doing it a you have to really want it uh, and sometimes you do just need that leap of faith uh, you need to just give things a try and i think sometimes you'll regret those things that you don't do uh, even more. And I think also, you know, if you are leaving a, a job or company where you've done pretty well and you leave on good terms, you find that the door's never fully closed. Of course, uh, there's challenges and, and stresses of every job, I'm sure. But uh, I think it's such a privilege to work in an industry where um, you're essentially, you know, making people's uh, holidays come true. But actually, at the same time, the lifestyle you lead, you basically get to live your life as someone else chooses it for it to be a holiday. Yeah. Um, and I think if you kind of keep that perspective, you never really feel underprivileged. <laughs> um, uh, you feel you feel the exact opposite. Absolutely. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with me. I know that you've got plans going off into East Africa again once uh, coronavirus has, has sorted itself out. And I wish you all the very, very best with, with that uh, new endeavour and, um, and, and life down there. Uh, I know you're going to be going down there to work with your partner, Leonie, as well. Say hi. And, and I wish her all the very best on, the, on that journey too. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, so all hope we come out of lockdown and can, can get back to Africa uh, doing what we, we, we know and love as soon as we can. 100%. You take care. All the very best. Kwaheri. Asante sana. That's all I know. Anyway, you take care, mate. You take care. <laughs> take take, take care, best. my friend. All the best. Bye. My thanks to Jake for his insights into life in Tanzania and running a safari camp. Ruwaha really is that beautiful, so put it on the bucket list. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Steve Odie, and subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google. Take care, everyone, and thanks for listening.